Reading from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 21. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments on the road, and and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I'll pray. God, I thank you again um, that we can gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we are here, God, only because of you and who you are and what you've accomplished on our behalf through Christ and in Christ. We need you, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts, our minds, that you would minister to us, that you would use your word, God, to um, strengthen and encourage us and to bring us into greater conformity to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It was um, a couple years ago, maybe, I don't remember all the details, um, but Patsy and I checked into a, a hotel, and we had some of our kids with us. I think it was Ryan and Melissa and Mark and Audrey, and, and so we were, each had our own rooms, and, um, and as we were checking in and everybody was getting their rooms, and I think Patsy and I were last, and the, the woman that was checking us in, she said something to the effect, um, your room, there will be no charges, Mr. McCall, and it has been upgraded. Well, my kids were shocked, and, and Ryan looked and said, why? And I just said, well, clearly she knows who I am. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty funny. And the lady laughed and I laughed. And the, but years ago, when Holiday Inn Express was offering these credit cards and they give you a platinum level membership and all you do is buy their $50 credit card every year and they give you free upgrades on their rooms and they give you a free night every year um, to stay with them and so that more pays for the $50 fee for the credit card. And so I'm not anybody special, but it was fun you know, telling my kids, she knows who I am. Well, we're coming to the, now with chapter 21 of Matthew, to the last week of Christ's earthly ministry. And so if you just look at that, where we are, 20 chapters in Matthew dealing with the first three years of Christ's ministry. 20 whole chapters, three years. And now, eight chapters, one week. And so clearly, the emphasis is on the last week that we are just starting now. And This whole book has been about presenting Jesus as king. 
And even here in what I just read, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. So if there is a theme to this book, that might be it. Behold your king. And still, the people aren't getting it. They have no excuse. Jesus has said over and over again who he is. And, and they, but they're asking this question in verse 11. The multitudes were saying, who is this? Tragic that after three years of every imaginable way, he has proved and stated who he is that the multitudes are still saying, who is he? So I would just want to start this section of Scripture by saying, we are now entering what is, without doubt, the most significant week in human history. The week that we call the Passion Week, where Christ came into Jerusalem, once again offering himself, presenting himself as king, and then at the end of the week, on the Sunday, rising from the dead. There is no more significant week in all of human history than this week. And then the second point being, not only is this the most significant week, but it is addressing the most significant question that every person will ever have to face in his life. And that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is what Jesus said earlier. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And all kinds of answers were given. And then finally, Jesus turned to his own disciples, remember, and said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke for the others and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if all we had was the baptism of Christ, and then nothing more until the last week of his life, there would be no excuse for anybody not to know who he is. Because remember what God said from heaven at his, at his baptism. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And he spoke distinctly. He did not mumble. <laughs> God doesn't mumble. And he spoke very clearly, very distinctly. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So the people are without excuse to even ask this question again. Who is he? condemns them. So this is, is actually a long section here. Um, a section of scripture I was, thought I was taught in seminary is called a pericope. I was corrected on that by a friend recently, and he told me it's not pericope, it's pericope. And I go, well, I like pericope. Well, that's not how you pronounce it. It's pericope. And so this is a long pericope of scripture. It starts here in chapter 21, and it goes on into chapter 22. And the first part of it is there are three things, three events, historical events that take place. And then there are three parables that take place. And then there are um, three, or, uh, sorry, yeah, and then three confrontations in chapter 22 that Jesus faces with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that crowd that hate him. And so in the first part, three events, and the first of the three events is his triumphal entry, we call it, into um, the temple and into Jerusalem. So there's a little bit of background here. Major Thomas, he, when he preached, he used to say, I've got to do the donkey work first. And so there's a lot of donkey work to lay out here before we get into the details of this chapter. So I've just said he is presenting himself as king. It is the most significant week in human history. But what we also need to understand is that this is the day, this is Monday, 
It would have been March 30th of 33 AD, or the month Nisan, and day 10 of that month. And it is the day of the week of Passover where the people are selecting their Passover lambs. So a lot of people came to Jerusalem without a lamb. So this is one of the biggest um, aspects of the commerce that was taking place during the week because these thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, had to buy lambs. And so the city is just in, in, in just chaos with all the commerce, all the people, all the lambs that have to be purchased. And every single family had to have a lamb. And they would buy that lamb, acquire that lamb, select that lamb on this day, the same day that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem as the king, he's also presenting himself as the lamb of God. So this is phenomenal, all that's taking place. In addition to that, this is the exact day that Daniel prophesied 483, no, yeah, 483 years earlier He said, Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, he says that there's going to be a decree issued for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And from that time, that starts the clock. And he says, 483 years later, the Messiah will be cut off. That's this day. Doesn't mean, doesn't appear that Daniel meant he's going to be crucified that day, but he's going to be rejected that day. So Jesus has been rejected over and over again ever since his baptism, but this is the final culminating rejection. And this is why Jesus is, is every other time, all the way up through his his three years ministry, he has been cutting a low profile as much as possible. He heals somebody, don't tell him I healed you. He, He is avoiding the crowds of Jerusalem. He won't even tell his own family when he's going to Jerusalem. He's cutting a very low profile and he's, and he's avoiding the con- confrontation as much as possible with the Pharisees. John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus goes up to Nazareth. He gets away from everybody. And not now. Now he's forcing the issue here. And so he is, he is, Jesus is purposely bringing this to a climax. He knows this is the time. This is his hour. This is what he came for. He is to die, and this is why he came. But there needs to be a final, definitive rejection of him as king and him as lamb of God. And it is such a significant thing on the calendar that Jesus will say in Luke, when the people are crying out, Hosanna, and the Pharisees are saying, make them stop. And Jesus says, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. And we believe that he says that because Jesus was fully aware of the calendar. This is the day that Daniel prophesied. So you cannot over estimate, can't overstate the significance of this week, this day, and all that's going on here. It is the termination of Daniel's 69 weeks from the time that Artaxerxes issued the decree for the rebuilding of Jerusalem in 440 BC to the present time. He is presenting himself as king and lamb, and he is forcing them to recognize and make a decision. He is compelling action on who he is. It's not unlike when when Joshua, at the end of his life, said, Choose this day whom you will follow. That seems to be the, the emphasis here. Jesus is saying, make up your minds. And he knows what they're going to do. They're going to reject him. He has no doubt about it. He came to die. And he knows what they'll do. So now getting into the text a little bit, it says, 
And when he had approached Jerusalem, um, he went through Bethphage. He comes to the Mount of Olives and he's saying to them, go into the village and you're going to find a donkey and a colt and bring them to me. And if they say, why, what right do you have to take them? Say in verse 3, the Lord has need of them. Now, this is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus refers to himself as Lord using this word. Normally, this is the word that is used of Yahweh. And Jesus has never spoken of himself with this particular word until now. The only time in the Gospels. And so, go get this donkey, untie the donkey, untie its colt, and just haul him away. And the owner's going to come out and say, who are you and what do you think you're doing? And all you need to say is, the Lord has need of them. Now, this is another demonstration of of his being king. Because the king has the right of requisition. This was one of the warnings that that Moses gave when he wrote about what the king will do and what Samuel, when they wanted a king. Both Moses and Samuel warned the people, when you have a king, he will have the right of requisition. He can requisition your sons and daughters to be his servants, your sons to be his soldiers. He can take your fields. He can take anything he wants because he's king. And that's what Jesus is doing. And whoever owned that that donkey and its colt understood and respected that claim. So probably a follower of Christ. And so they bring the colt and the donkey. Jesus rode on the colt. The colt has never had anybody ride on him. Jesus is able to ride on him without the colt bucking, which demonstrates again his power over all creation. And so it says, this took place in order to fulfill what the prophet said, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The point here is two things. He is king and he's coming in peace. Kings rode, at least Jewish kings rode donkeys in times of peace. In times of war, they didn't ride donkeys. And they sure didn't ride donkeys' colts. They rode horses. And so the horse was a picture of war. And so if a king was coming in battle, he was on a horse. But if he was coming in peace, he was on a donkey. Next time Jesus comes, it's not going to be on a donkey. He comes on a horse, and he is waging war against his enemies. And so it just shows the grace again. Even though Jesus has no delusions about what the people are going to do, he knows exactly that he's going to be rejected. He knows clearly that he's going to die. And he knows exactly how he's going to die by crucifixion. He still comes in grace. He comes in peace. It's amazing. Just grace upon grace. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and and they spread their garments on the the colt and and they put garments even on the ground and they were cutting branches on the ground and and all of this just just to give acknowledgement of his majesty. They didn't really believe it. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after him, verse 9, were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. So King David, God, the son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. God in the highest. God save us from on high. 
All of this was prophesied, and it means nothing. It's just loudness. It's commotion. Verse 10. How loud? How much of a commotion? And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. This word stirred is a very strong word. It's like the city is experiencing an earthquake. One um, historian believed that at this time, at the Passover, the city could contain 210,000 people. The little city of Jerusalem. If you ever go to Jerusalem and you're inside the old city, you're going, how could they pack 210,000 people? That's more than the Colosseum could, could hold. And we've seen how big the Colosseum, can you imagine being in the Colosseum and they're all screaming at one time? The city of Jerusalem, 200,000 people, and they're all stirred. And so the whole city, it's like the city was vibrating, but it means nothing. You have to wonder, how could they have the presence of the Son of God in their midst, who has been so clearly announced from heaven for who he is? He spent three years with them, demonstrating over and over again by many convincing proofs that he was the Son of God. And they're still asking the question, who is this person? And then they clearly reject him. What was their confidence? How could they do this and think that it would not cost them everything? Seems to be because they had that all their security was in the temple. And as long as they have the temple, everything's going to go okay. And so the very next thing that happens in verse 12 is the cleansing of the temple. And then by the time we get over to chapter 20, 24, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. It's like these people had in their mind, you know, I can be uncertain about Jesus. I can put off who Jesus is. I can even reject him. But as long as the temple is standing, everything's going to go good for Israel. There are so many parallels to that today, at least for the United States. I can't speak for other countries. But I think even a lot of people in this world hang their hope on the fact that we are still here. And all the millions of people that are trying to flood in this country, clearly the United States is their hope. And even here, I, we're all guilty of it, thinking, boy, if we could just get a conservative government, one that believes in the Constitution, and now that we say, we've got it, that's our, and I wonder sometimes if God doesn't have us at the same place that Jerusalem was at. We've had so much opportunity. And instead of placing our faith in him, we are fa we are, our faith too much of the time is in our constitution and in a conservative form of government, in capitalism rather than Marxism. And I get it. It scares me to death to think the path that we are heading down so rapidly. But our hope as a nation as a people, as individuals, is only Jesus. And the most pressing question is not who we elect to office. 
but it's what will we do with Jesus? Who do we say he is? And will we trust in him? So Jesus entered the temple, and he cast out all those who were buying and selling. And this is the second time he's done this. He did it at the beginning of his ministry. It was a statement of judgment then. It's a statement of judgment now. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. People were just making tons of money, forcing everyone to not use secular coinage in the holy place of the temple. What a joke. Now, this is the place of God. You can't use ungodly money. You can't use Caesar's money in God's house. So they would bring Caesar's money and they would change it into temple currency and make a killing on the exchange rates. Just like today, nothing's changed. And Jesus said, it is written, my house, making a claim of deity, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, this would have all taken place probably in the court of the Gentiles and where all people had access to. But it's in the court of the Gentiles, that's where the Gentiles were supposed to hear concerning God and His Word. This would be a place of preaching, a place of evangelism, a place where Gentiles could, could, could come into the faith. And I don't think you could hear anything in the court of the Gentiles except for bleeding sheep, and, and, and cows mooing and, and, and all the commotion that was going on. It was sad. A place that was meant to be a place of ministry, a place of quiet instruction in the things of God, is a place of commerce and chaos. No wonder Jesus is so upset. After he cleanses the temple, casts everybody out, emphasizing prayer, says in verse 15, um, verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This again would have been in the court of the Gentiles because the blind and the lame could not go into the actual place that was reserved for the Jewish people because they were unclean. So Jesus is, is, is restoring prayer and restoring access to the temple by those who are unclean by bringing change um, or we could say spiritually, conversion to them. Everything that the temple was supposed to signify. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, and said to him, do you hear what they are, these are saying? And Jesus said to them, like they're not hearing all these animals and all their noises. Do you, he says, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Now, the most significant week in human history, the most important question that anybody will ever have to answer, and maybe the most tragic statement, at least among the top tragic statements in all of Scripture, he left them. And he went out of the city to Bethany. More than one commentator says he left them. This wasn't just it was the end of the day and it's time to leave. This was a statement of clear condemnation. He left them. Remember who Jesus is. 
He's not just king. He's not just lamb of God. And those are hugely significant. Cannot underestimate them. Jesus is the glory of God. John 1 says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. One of the major themes of the Old Testament is God dwelling among his people. And one of the major themes of the Old Testament is God leaving his people. Not forsaking them, not breaking covenant with them, but things became at another time so bad in Israel because of its rampant spiritual adultery through idolatry that God, who had condescended to assign his presence to the Holy of Holies, he left. He physically left. The glory of God departed. This is what Eli, um, daughter-in-law, said when she got the news that her, her father-in-law and her husband had died and the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines. Remember what he said? She said, Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Ichabod. Strong, ugly word. The glory of God departed in the vision of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was in a vision sent to Jerusalem, was told to tunnel underneath the temple walls and to see what was going on. And he was able to look into the Holy of Holies and he saw that that there was pagan idolatrous worship taking place in the temple itself. And then the next thing God leads him to see is the glory of God hovering over the temple and then moving over to the Mount of Olives and then leaving and ascending back into heaven. Saddest day up to that point in Israel's history. And after that, all of the temple um, ceremonies were just empty superstition. It wasn't wrong that they had built a temple. It wasn't wrong that they were worshiping and having sacrifices at the temple. But the presence of God was not in the temple. And so it was just a shadow of what it should have been. The reality wasn't there. All of this is how so many people live their lives. Even claiming to be Christians. But they do not possess the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. And if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, but you do not have Christ in you, you do not have the glory of God, and you do not belong to him. Romans 8 says, he who has the Spirit belongs to him. He who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. It's as simple as that. It's not about religion. It's not about ceremony. It is about a personal relationship with Christ. We place our faith in him, believing him to save us, to grant us eternal life. At that moment, he indwells us. And the one who is the glory of God inhabits us as the temple of God. And every Christian is a temple of God. And the distinctive of our life 
is his presence. The distinctive of any person's life is the issue simply of Christ. Does he have Christ indwelling him or not? That is the one thing. And to hear now, he left them. On the day when he was to be chosen as king, chosen as lamb of God, he is rejected. And now he is rejecting them. The offer is done. There is no more offer of the kingdom after this point. They have rejected him, telling him, silence these people who are crying out who you are, and Jesus leaves them. It is scary. Their hope, their security, how can you reject him, was just in the form, was in the government, was in the religion, but not in the person of Jesus Christ. Terrible place to be. So now we move from the triumphal entry to the cleansing of the temple to Jesus cursing a fig tree. Must have been a bad day for him, right? No. Now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it, found nothing on it, except leaves only, and he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit on you, fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer believing, you shall receive. Seems like Jesus is a little bent out of shape to curse a tree and just have it die. First of all, the tree probably didn't even belong to anybody, so it's not like he damaged anybody's property. It would seem that the tree was just growing along the roadside and was not anyone's property. The fig tree was a um, symbol of the nation of Israel. And fig trees, unlike other fruit trees, will bear fruit before they even have leaves. And so a fig tree will put on figs and then put on leaves. So if you see a fig tree full of leaves, it's advertising figs. And so Jesus walks up, all these leaves, gets to looking, no figs, tree, you're a liar. You're advertising one thing, it's not true, it's hypocrisy, it's an empty profession. And so I believe Jesus is making a commentary and a judgment on the, on the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. Israel advertises life. Come world! And people leave just as dead as they came. It takes God to produce fruit. And these people are demonstrating by their fruitlessness their lack of relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, you can profess whatever you want, but I'm looking for God's activity in you, which is fruit. It's not there, and so you are worthy of condemnation. 
He's not talking here about Christians who are not bearing fruit. He is talking about people who would claim to be saved, who are claiming a relationship with God, when in fact it is not true. People who are maybe religious, maybe God-fearing, but it is not true that they have a relationship with God because only God can produce fruit. And so Jesus says, Israel, you're worthy of being condemned. I personally, I don't know that Jesus is saying that if you have enough faith, you can literally move cursed fig trees or move mountains. I wonder if he's not speaking figuratively about both the fig tree and the mountain, because the fig tree represents Israel. And many times mountains in Scripture represent kingdoms. And because all of this is pointing to to his kingdom being rejected, he is being rejected as king, but ultimately he's going to come back and establish his kingdom. And the kingdom that Israel is now living under, the kingdom of this world, Daniel prophesied and said it is going to come to an end. The mountain of the kingdom of this world is going to be destroyed and God is going to create another mountain kingdom and that will be the kingdom of Jesus. And so I wonder if he's not saying we should have faith to pray that the mountain of the kingdom of this world would be thrown into the sea and the mountain of his kingdom would be established. I believe that fits with the Lord's prayer, where he said, pray then in this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're talking individually that he would reign over our lives, but we're also praying um, that over this world, his kingdom would come. And that can't happen without first the kingdom of this world being destroyed. So pray, Jesus is saying, without doubting, for his kingdom to come. The Pharisees are going to challenge his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Verse 23, who gave you this authority? The inference is we didn't, and nobody can get authority except we dispense it, and we didn't give it to you, so where did you get it? And so Jesus turns the tables on him and says, you tell me, where did the authority of John the Baptist come from? And so they don't want to answer that question. It's the last question on earth they want to answer. And they understand if they say the authority came from John the Baptist, and they're going to say, well, why didn't you believe in him? And we say the authority um, came from, from di- came, or was in self-authority, did not come from God, then we're afraid of the people, and they're going to riot against us. So they say, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, I'll use the same answer. I'm not going to answer you either. Verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then three parables. I'm not going to dig down on all the details here, but the three parables concern the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's very clear as you go through these parables. The first one, there's a parable of two sons that are each told by their father to go out and do something. So it says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will. And he did not. And so then he had another son. He says, same thing, go to work in the vineyard. And he says, I will not. Yet afterward, he regretted it and went and went to work. 
which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the latter one, the one who said he wouldn't, but then did. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. Poor translation there with the word before in the New American Standard. I guess a lot of the translations do the same. The word there really would be better translated instead of you. So again, to read it, he says, um, tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God instead of you. And it was that clear to these people. Because they have rejected Jesus, and now Jesus has rejected them. And he says, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Because it depends on what you do with the question, who is Jesus? And you are rejecting Jesus for who he is. You will not get into the kingdom of heaven. Tax gatherers and harlots, different story. Because they understand who Jesus is. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. The tax gatherers and harlots did believe him, and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. So this is an issue of rebellion, disobedience toward the Father. Very clear. One group, one son obeys the Father, one son disobeys the Father. The ones who obey are the tax gatherers and harlots. The ones who disobey are the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it says, you have disobeyed God the Father. Not only that, but you intend to murder the Son. That's the next parable. Listen to another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So make no mistake. These people knew exactly who this person was. He is the son of the father. And Jesus is saying, you know who I am. I am the son of the father. He is making another claim to be the son of God. It was absolutely clear throughout his ministry. And he's telling these people, you are preparing to kill me and you know what you're doing. You are not going to be able to to claim ignorance on this. Now, it's true, some of the people were ignorant. Peter's going to make reference to that in Acts. But when it comes to these religious leaders, they cannot claim ignorance. They cannot. The evidence is overwhelming of who Jesus is. And so it says, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they're so caught up in the story, they don't even realize he's talking about them. <laughs> it's crazy. And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and, he will, and they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers and pay him the proceeds at a proper season. And Jesus said to them, did you, ne- did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this came out from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be, be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but whomever it falls, it will be, he will be scattered like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they understood that he was speaking about them, yeah. And when they sought to seize him, they sought to seize him, but, but they were afraid of the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. 
So they are disobedient to the father. They want to kill the son, and they will. And the third parable is they also reject and resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 22, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he went out to his slaves and called those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went on their way, one to his own business, onto his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And when the king came in, he looked over the dinner guests. He saw there was a man not dressed um, in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." How did the man come in? Why didn't he have... The wedding garments, the wedding clothing were provided by the the man. So you didn't have to have your own wedding garments. You could show up in your rags. He would give you good clothes to wear. And so this person is refusing to dress with what has been provided. I think it's a statement that he wasn't saved. That God offers salvation. He offers the clothing of righteousness to all who will receive it. This man didn't, so he gets cast out. Here's the, his conclusion. Many are called. Now, I want you to think carefully about this parable. So much confusion about it, and maybe I don't fully understand it, but this is how I see it. Many are called, and we see that in the parable. Three different times, the father of the groom says, come to the wedding feast of my son. Come to the wedding feast. Anybody that wants to come can come. So it is, it is an It is a a calling to all, not to some. That's the first point here. It is a calling to all, not to some. And then the second part, but few are chosen. And if you've got a good Bible translation here, the R is in italics, telling you it is not in the original text. There is no verb in the second half of this sentence. It's a compound sentence, but the second half doesn't have the verb. So you've got two choices. You can supply the previous verb in the first half, which is are. Many are called. And so that's what most of the translations have done. They've just borrowed that verb and say, well, let's just put that in the hole. But that doesn't fit the parable, does it? The parable, many is all, Everybody that could possibly be called has been called, and many oftentimes does mean all in Scripture. That's not a problem. And so everybody that could have been called was called, but here's the point of the parable. Many of those called chose not to respond to the invitation. So it was their choice to not respond. 
So, but few, I think the better verb would be have chosen. Few, many have been called. But of those who have been called, few have responded to the calling. Few chose to respond. So we all get invitations, RSVP, you know, and you're supposed to, you know, good manners, good etiquette is you respond and you tell people and, and, and you try to be there if at all you can. Here, the point is, the Spirit of God is drawing. How many does He draw? Jesus says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. All. But does that mean all are going to be saved? Absolutely not. And so this is where we get that we can resist the invitation. We can resist the calling. Clearly, many of the people who were called ignored the calling, resisted the calling, did not respond and go to the invitation, respond to the invitation. But the overarching, and I think this is one of those places where we can dig down in all the details and get lost in the weeds, or we can just step back, and I think this is the prophet here, this passage, step back and look at what is happening so far. Jesus has come in on the day prophesied by Daniel, and if the people don't cry out, Hosanna to God, the king in the highest, then the stones will cry out. This is an extreme fulfillment of Scripture. He is presenting himself one last time as king, and they are rejecting him. He is also presenting himself as the Lamb of God. So that day that these thousands of people are choosing lambs and taking them in their house and living with those lambs for three days, examining the lamb for three days to make sure that it was out without blemish, and then on the next day, on that Friday, they would, even, they would cook, kill that lamb and eat it for their supper that Passover evening. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of all of this. And they are asking the question, who is he? And they missed the point. That's why I say this has got to be the, the, not only the most significant week in human history, but it's one of the most tragic turn of events. Nothing could be clear. These people are without excuse. And he leaves them. And in doing so, the glory of God is departing. And the glory of God will not return until individual men and women and boys and girls say, Jesus, save me. And the glory of God comes to indwell us. He curses the fig tree, saying this is what Israel deserves. They are a nation of hypocrites. They profess life, but there is no life in them, as many, many people do today. They challenge his authority And he says, let me respond by just telling you how much you deserve to be judged. You have flatly rebelled against God, said that you would obey him, and you do not obey him. It is your every intention to kill his son. And the Spirit of God has been calling you, drawing you, and you resist him and refuse to go. All of this adds up to, this is tragic. There is, this has been grace upon grace upon grace to a people who will not respond. There is one statement 
<clears throat> that's going to come back in, at the end of chapter 23, where the people said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus is going to say, I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's just Jesus saying, over and over again, as clearly as he can, I came, you knew who I was, you said no, you've rejected me, and Israel, I'm gone. He left them. And I am not coming back to Israel again until Israel says what they just said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When, you, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what we're praying for is their salvation. We are praying that Israel, this mountain of opposition to Jesus, maybe that's the mountain Jesus is talking about. This mountain of flat, stubborn obstinacy against Christ. Rebellion on every level that that mountain would finally be moved and that Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that day is coming. Everything in history has been designed to move Israel toward that point. For us, I pray that again, that all of us hearing this would understand There is no more significant question that we will ever have to answer than who is Jesus? And what have you done with him? When we stand before God in glory, he is not going to ask how many times we went to church. He's not going to ask how many times you read your Bible from cover to cover. He's not going to ask even if you led other people to Jesus. Because you can lead people to Jesus and not be saved. I'll never forget hearing on the radio this lady was giving her testimony. And she says, I wrote curriculum, books, on how to evangelize. And they were being, that stuff was being sold all over the nation. And she says, I was driving down the road one day hearing somebody read my curriculum on how to be saved. And she said, and I got saved. She wasn't even a believer. God's not going to ask you how many people you led to Jesus. He's not going to ask you how many times you read your Bible, how often you went to church. He's not going to ask you how good you were. He's going to say, here's Jesus. What would you do with him? And I know there are people in this world who have never heard the name Jesus. I get it. But I also believe if Jesus be lifted up, and he has been, And the Spirit of God will draw all men to himself. And I don't know how that works out, but I absolutely believe that God is drawing all to himself. And we will stand before him with no excuse. The last part of Romans 11, which is really the culmination of Paul's entire theological argument, He says that he has shut up all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. Nobody is going to stand before God and say, but 
I didn't know. Everyone's mouth will be shut up. And even in judgment, God will remember mercy. But that doesn't mean that people are going to be allowed into his kingdom who never responded to the drawing of God. You cannot spend your life disobeying God, putting the Son to death, and resisting the calling of the Holy Spirit and expect to be received by God. We must place our faith in him. He came to his own. His own received him not. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, in these days when there is really just so much anger and confusion, and it just seems to be increasing day to day, I pray that our own hearts would grow more and more tender toward you. That we would not be among the hard-hearted. You have spoken to us. You have revealed your son to us. But we know, God, that we can grow cold in the faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, that that would not be the case. Keep us, O God. Nurture our faith. Thank you for your drawing ministry to yourself. And God, renew our hearts that no matter what's happening in in the world that we're living in, as hostile as it's becoming, that we would be a people of tender hearts toward you. Loosen our mouths, God, to speak of Jesus. And that we would encourage people to respond to what they know of Jesus. To respond to the drawing of God to him. To yield to him in faith. And to know the deliverance that only he can give from sin. And the free gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world. We have not believed cleverly devised tales or fables. You entered into history, lived as a man among us, offered yourself for us, and rose again from the grave that you might indwell us. We thank you and praise you, God, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.